Welcome everybody, I'm Ian Welsh from Innovation Forum and this is our new series of debates. What we're going to be doing is taking contentious issues and trying to get to the bottom of any misinformation, debunking what has to be debunked and we'll aim to find out what reforms are necessary. We're going to talk about voluntary carbon markets and carbon projects today and think a bit about what companies need to know to have confidence in the sector and the role that the carbon markets can play as the world economy decarbonises over the coming decades. Recently, corporate use of the voluntary carbon markets and verified emissions credits has come under intense scrutiny and comment. Reporting in The Guardian and elsewhere has claimed that many certified credits do not represent genuine carbon reductions. On the other side, certifying bodies and others supporting the use of the voluntary carbon markets and projects tackling deforestation have stoutly defended verified emissions reduction credits and the science behind the certification. Certainly, the voluntary carbon markets are imperfect. Challenges include establishing baselines and accounting methodologies. Nevertheless, carbon projects, including Red Plus projects, are perhaps the best method we currently have of getting finance to indigenous communities so that they can value their forests with the trees standing. I'm delighted that joining our webinar panel today, we have David Antonioli, who's the CEO of VERA. We have Bean Atzler, team leader, people and business at the UK's Climate Change Committee, and Sam Gill, co-founder and president with Silvera. And my thanks also to Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson and Diana Kim, our webinar tech hosts, for all their work in the run-up today. David, VERA has developed climate action standards, including certifying carbon credits, and you are in the firing line, it's true to say, from The Guardian's articles and have publicly and robustly responded. Let's start by picking up the main allegations from The Guardian. It seemed to me they really fell into three buckets. Firstly, that few projects have demonstrated reduced deforestation. Secondly, that threats to forests and projects have been overstated. And thirdly, that there are some serious human rights concerns at projects. Taking those in turn, how do you counter those? Just to begin with, VAR is absolutely committed to developing and enforcing the highest standards for many different types of environmental projects, including RED. And we take these allegations very seriously, but it's really important to note that these are sensationalist headlines. The core of these allegations came from one academic who relies on a desk-based, top-down model to assess something that requires a bottom-up analysis. And he's essentially comparing apples and oranges. By this, I mean that the approach taken to assess these projects looks at sites that are selected by the study that, in many cases, do not reflect the same forest type, do not reflect the same kind of socioeconomic drivers that are affecting the project, and in many cases are located far, far away from where the project site is. So we're essentially comparing apples and oranges. And then the Guardian takes that analysis and extrapolates it and then uses that to make these outlandish claims based on their own analysis on the initial analysis. And let me just be very clear. The second study in this reference, this reference in the Guardian article, doesn't throw red under the bus. In fact, that study recognizes that the projects are actually conserving force. So I think that the, the problem here is that they've taken one study, blown it up, and used it to make these outlandish claims that lead to sensationalist headlines. And I think that's very unfortunate, to be perfectly frank. And we've refuted these pretty robustly in webinars like this and in other places. I think what's really important as we take a macro view of this is that all sectors are subject to evolution. Red and the carbon market is going through an evolution. And, you know, years ago, we started a process where we wanted to revise baselines are created. You mentioned baselines in your initial comment. The reality with red is that you have to have a counterfactual to make it work. And that's something that's just a fact of reality. And you have to have the best ways of, of identifying that. When we first started this journey 10 or 12 years ago, we developed a set of rules and procedures that were based on the best and the latest scientific best practices, the best understanding of how you did this. And the conclusion was you have to identify a reference area to compare your project site against. And that was understood to be the best way. That's what we did. And we actually on purpose created or allowed the creation 
of a number of different methodologies because nobody had put pen to paper and understood how you actually use carbon ants to protect forests. So we thought it was a worthwhile exercise to move into this and figure out how we could do that. Over the years, we've learned, we pioneered a lot, and certainly we've done some, but a lot of the people on the ground have put a lot of effort and a lot of investment and a lot of work into making these projects work. And you can go to any one of them and see the impacts of them. And we now have a robust set of projects that are protecting forests, helping communities, conserving biodiversity. That, I think, ultimately is the key thing here. These projects are having an impact. If you roll the videotape forward to kind of where we are today, we now decided, okay, we've now had that moment where we've been able to allow a number of different approaches, and we need to bring them together. Going forward, we're going to consolidate the methodologies, and there will be a single methodology that people will have to use. All existing projects will have to use that going forward. The methodology will be based on a jurisdictional baseline. Again, People have been talking about jurisdictional baselines for years. In fact, when we first started this journey 12 years ago, we thought that that was the bee's knees. We thought that's where we wanted to go. But there were no working models. There was, there was a lot of methodological gaps on how you actually did that in a robust way. Today and now we have that data that we can create robust jurisdictional baselines. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to use a robust jurisdictional baseline, and then we're going to allocate down to individual projects based on the risk profile of the project area that's being conserved. That's just a great example of how we're moving forward. We've also had a few other improvements that we're doing to the work. So we now require baselines to be recessed every six years. And of course, now we have a lot of digital and satellite imagery that we're working to figure out how we actually embrace it and use it to robustly and transparently verify the reductions that are being achieved. To come back to the overall message, I think there's a real positive look for red going forward in carbon in general. But even if you take a step back and we look at the forest and the trees, let's not forget that today, the debates happening at least a few miles away from here, where I live in Washington, D.C., in Congress, are about prohibiting companies from considering ESG in their investments. We need to be really mindful that where we have gotten to in the voluntary carbon market, in many ways, has helped drive this consciousness about the importance of climate and the need for companies to do something about it. But now it's coming back around and a lot of people saying, oh, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that. And they're actually thinking about implementing laws that prohibit companies from considering climate and other social and governance issues into their consideration. That, as a macro view, should really galvanize all of us in the sector to make sure that we keep a focus on making sure that corporates understand and value the importance of taking action, because otherwise they're just going to sit on the sidelines. I'm conscious that the specific questions I put around projects not demonstrating reduced deforestation, threats to forests and projects have been overstated, and the human rights concerns. Could you just very quickly run through each of those? How do you counter the point around projects are not demonstrating reduced deforestation? I think it's wrong. I mean, if you look at the evidence, projects are advancing against their baselines. The important thing to note is that for red and all carbon credits with their salt, you only get the credit when you've demonstrated you've conserved. So if there is deforestation on a plot of land that you're trying to conserve, you're not going to get the credit. And so that's really important. So the credits that are in the market represent real emission reductions that have been achieved. The baselines, I did mention that, the baselines are developed through a process where you identify a reference area, and the baselines are, we believe, robust, and they followed a process. I think that's really important. It's easy for someone to say, oh, I've got a different baseline based on a different assessment I've made. Well, the importance is that for, as a standard setting body, we have a set of procedures that projects have to follow in order to create their baselines. And that's not an opinion, that's a process. And I think that counts for a lot. So we stand behind all the credits that have been issued, but we are moving towards this new method of setting the baselines that is based on a jurisdictional baseline 
being allocated down to individual projects. And on the human rights allegations, there's a process for following that up. I understand that there was some allegations in the Alto Mayo project. I know CI is investigating those. Whenever we receive a, a formal complaint, we'll investigate it. But that's being investigated through the CI process. And I believe that we'll take action if it needs to happen. But we need to wait for that process to play through. And I guess your more detailed response to the allegations are all on your website. So anyone can go to there and see the more detailed rebuttal of the points raised by the Guardian's story. B, let me turn to you. The Climate Change Committee is the statutory provider of advice to the UK government and the devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. From that perspective then, what for you is the role of the voluntary carbon markets? Last year, myself and my team recognised that the voluntary carbon market was a space where there were a lot of quite strongly held opinions on different sides and saw quite a lot of value in ourselves as an independent advisor, assessing the evidence against those risks and opportunities that people point to. The main opportunities being channeling funds towards nature-based solutions or even more long-lived permanent removals, and the main risks being slowing corporate action and the possible low quality of carbon credits. So maybe I'll just briefly talk through, first of all, what we found when we reviewed the evidence in terms of the concerns and then the opportunities. So in terms of the concerns, the key thing that came out from our evidence review was a real risk that the voluntary carbon market would be slowing corporate action and directly reducing emissions. This was done with a UK lens, but I think it's probably hopefully applicable in a broad sense globally, though I wouldn't want to say that the evidence we looked at was global in this regard. So firstly, we reviewed the price of carbon credits, which is incredibly low. So the global average is around $3 per tonne. And when you compare that against recommendations from various bodies for an appropriate carbon prices or ETS permits, which range from $50 to $100 per tonne, you can see that there's a clear incentive there for businesses if they're considering a credit as an alternative to actually decarbonizing to go for this more affordable, cheaper option. This is a real concern because to reach net zero in the UK and globally, we need real concerted UK business action now to reduce their own emissions. And um, so, for example, in the UK, we estimate that around two thirds of UK emissions are business scope one emissions. And we need to see those rapidly reducing in the next few years. As a priority, we really need to see businesses investing in their own supply chains, their own operations to reduce those emissions before they look to carbon credits or offsets. And just a final piece of evidence, perhaps to note there is we commissioned a review of the published FTSE 100 emissions reduction plans and found that out of the third of them that outlined plans for using carbon credits for offsetting, on average, they covered around 80% of their emissions under a certain methodology, another up to a third, either way of which is at a much higher than it should be if um, offsets are being used as a last resort. That's a kind of a primary risk, I guess, that we focused on. And I guess it's worth noting here that if carbon credits are being purchased by businesses and that's not disincentivizing them from directly reducing their own emissions, it actually becomes a lot less pertinent the exact measurement of carbon credits and if it's exactly right, given the challenges with baselining and the like that David mentioned. If we're really confident that businesses are purchasing credits purely as an add-on and are directly reducing their emissions, it would be great if they were really accurate and we would like that, but it's less of a big risk to net zero. But then to come to that other side, we also did a review of the risk that carbon credits are overstated or um, providing inaccurate claims for carbon reduction, avoidance or removal. And our evidence review did find significant concerns that in general, internationally, over, I guess, around a 10 year period, there was strong evidence that there have been credits that overstate the impacts, uh, misjudge the baselines. And often this is linked to the challenge of additionality which, as David has mentioned, is it's not for lack of trying. It's a really challenging area to get right. To put out a baseline, particularly when it's around avoided emissions, it's really hard to know exactly what that would be and to get it right. But yeah, we did recognise that there's a real concern there. And I think perhaps moving slightly into the opportunities then, there's a few key opportunities. So the, the first that I would point to is the value of channeling companies' goodwill and desire to sort of contribute to the wider global efforts on preserving nature without distracting from corporate 
emissions reduction themselves through things like a carbon price or committing to a set dollar per tonne to contribute to emission projects without using that to claim that it's fully offsetting business emissions. Perhaps two other things on opportunities as well. So we looked at the opportunity that people often point to for carbon credits to support nature-based solutions, improve biodiversity, etc. We found there was some degree of evidence that they can support that. Although I would caveat it that for them to make as large dent on global financing gaps for nature-based solutions, we will need to see a really large increase in demand for carbon credits and a really large increase in price both of which could be possible with the right controls in place. But as it currently stands, it's quite a small fraction. So not to undermine it, but I guess to make sure that voluntary carbon markets aren't seen as a get-out clause for governments themselves to support international climate priorities or other mechanisms needed to support nature-based solutions as well. And then the final thing I'd say is around engineered removals. So in the UK, we need to see some significant financing going towards this. And because while most emissions we hope will be directly reduced, some may remain and we need to be offset with engineer removals and land-based approaches. And there's a potential for voluntary carbon markets from a UK perspective to provide a bit of a stepping stone towards compliance markets, where businesses are then actually required to purchase permits or the like that contribute towards removals. So yeah, that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour of our report and happy to answer any questions. Thanks, thanks, B. I think it's really important, the point you alluded to, is having the right mitigation hierarchy. You can only really be thinking about going to carbon markets once you've decarbonised your own operations as far as you possibly can. And it's, carbon markets are not there to decarbonise your uh, operations. You need to do that yourself. And that's a really important point. David, I wonder if you want to come back on any of the issues that B raised there. I think that the, there's a sphere that voluntary markets are going to distract us from climate action. I'm not sure I agree with that. If you look at many of the corporates that have actually bought carbon credits, they actually have a responsible approach and they're doing internal reductions and they're offsetting. The holy grail of climate action from a voluntary carbon perspective, but from a climate action perspective, using relying on the voluntary carbon market, essentially requires companies to take on net zero targets, perform against them, and offset their residual emissions. That's kind of the perfect thing. And a lot of companies are doing that, not many, but that's where we need to be going. And that will actually get us to that state where we actually can do net zero. But let's remember that carbon credits today allow us from making the problem in 2050 a lot worse. Let's assume that all companies take on net zero targets. Great. By the time we get to 2050, we will have emitted a lot more carbon that we need to if we don't offset it now. And we will lose a lot of forest, we'll lose a lot of biodiversity. And importantly, to talk about the removals that be mentioned, the carbon markets can actually help drive finance to these removal technologies. That's a really key thing that carbon markets can do. And we can start to drive finance to those new technologies, those new approaches. The removals are really critical, but they're either expensive or they take a long time to deliver. If you look at a reforestation project, you're not going to get carbon for you know five to 10 years or more. We need to start making those investments. That's why I think the, the voluntary market can be really critical, but it does need to work in conjunction and complement internal reductions. I fully agree. I don't think it's as easy as to say, oh, just because people are investing in carbon markets that we're distracting from real climate action. I think the key is to really drive both. Sam, amongst other things, Silvera ranks carbon credits. Given the complexities involved, as we've heard, how do you advise your customers to find the best projects and work out what is right for their circumstances? Just introduce uh, Silvera to anyone who's not aware of it. As you say, Silvera is a company that rates the quality of carbon offsets. So we use very in-depth ratings frameworks for each project type and assess in a huge amount of depth and accuracy exactly what each credit is doing. So for example, if we were looking at a red plus credit, we look at three key pillars. We'll look at the, the carbon score of the project or the performance of the project. So we'll look at has the project done what it said it would. So if the project's reported that it's stopped deforestation completely, we'll assess and check whether that's actually happened using our own technology. 
will assess the additionality of the project, including the baseline, which, as David mentioned, is the piece of the puzzle that the Guardian article was particularly focused on. And we'll use some of the techniques, actually, that were included in the Guardian article to actually assess these projects. I think, as David mentioned, it's a bit of a simplistic assessment that's been used by the Guardian in this case. And so, actually, the the figure that they've used for the heading in that article is probably quite misleading. And then the third thing we do is we look at the permanence of the project. So we look at, are these projects storing carbon for an indefinite period of time, or is there significant risk that the carbon might end up in the atmosphere again? We collate all that data, and then we produce a top-level rating that runs from AAA down to D. And if we look at the distribution of quality in the market at the moment, there is a significant distribution of quality. So we do see a number of credits that according to our frameworks and our assessments and we're you know we're putting hundreds of hours of time into each single rating and thousands of hours into each of the frameworks we're seeing that there are a significant number of credits that are not delivering on the claims that they're making but we're also seeing a significant number of credits that actually are providing a huge amount of value and and are definitely having impact now i think the point that both B and David have made is that, look, especially when it comes to nature-based credits, especially when you're looking at a counterfactual, it is very hard to say with complete confidence that the number that any project comes to is completely accurate and completely correct. And also when you take into account the changes in the biosphere that are happening because of the accelerated pace of climate change that, that we're already observing, Increasingly, we don't know in 50 or 100 years time how these ecosystems are going to behave and whether they're going to be viable in the long term. So there is uncertainty around these credits, even the best credits we see uncertainty. You know, your question around how we advise our clients, what we're able to do is point them to the best credits, the credits that are having the most impact. But I think the other piece of the puzzle is what sort of claims the corporates or the companies are making when they buy these credits. And I think it's probably helpful to question whether a carbon neutrality claim or a net zero claim at this point in the decarbonization journey is really very helpful, especially when we take into account the uncertainty. As David says, it's really important that we protect these ecosystems And in many cases, a lot of companies are actually restricted in their ability to completely decarbonize in the short term. They couldn't do it if they wanted to, even if they had infinite cash. And so I think it's really, really important that we find maybe a third way in which we can encourage and incentivize corporate climate action. And the voluntary carbon markets can be a very, very powerful tool in doing that. But perhaps we're a bit more honest about the uncertainty that sits around the crediting mechanisms and the the quantification of the impacts of these projects. At this stage, it almost feels like the carbon neutrality claim is becoming a distraction. It's actually fueling a perhaps unhelpful debate around the quantification of the impact of these credits. When actually, if we're honest, the quantification of corporate emissions and even national emissions very very problematically wrong as well. So there's an equivalent accuracy issue on the corporate accounting and national accounting side too. Focusing this of unhelpful level of scrutiny and demand on the voluntary carbon markets because of the carbon neutrality debate is almost, I think, distracting from the bigger picture here, which is about contributing to the global push to net zero whilst you're on your own net zero journey. That would be basically how we speak to our clients and we support that. Sometimes net zero claims are unhelpful because of the uncertainty. If we're not going to be looking at net zero, what do we look for then? That's a debate that we're seeing growing at the moment. So if we move away from a carbon neutrality claim, what are the alternatives? I think there are a number of alternative claims that are kind of popping up. Some people are preferring a mitigation contribution style claim or a contribution claim. You can talk about contributing to the global net zero journey or contributing to mitigating your immediate impact whilst you're on a net zero journey. So there are lots of different terms that are sort of starting to pop up. But I think the theme we're seeing amongst some of our clients is a shift away from this 
offsetting or net zero carbon neutral claim towards this sort of contribution claim. But I'd be be interested to hear of B, maybe you've thought about this. Yeah, I really agree with what you said there, Sam. I think this is something we thought quite a lot about in the development of our report. And there was a concern that claims and the focus on net zero from companies can be seen as disingenuous, particularly because they often don't stack up with level of robustness of, say, national net zero targets. And that can undermine the reputation of all net zero targets and for any kind of anything linked to that, including voluntary carbon markets, into disrepute. I think contribution credits and contribution claims, and this is something we recommended the government look into how they can encourage. I think the challenge is, and you probably know this better than me, Sam, how to make sure that it's got enough reputational gain for a company for them to have enough incentives to want to pursue that. We also considered thinking about a label on track to net zero or even offset zero, though I think that has too many negative connotations that would capture that a company's sort of in line with, say, like an SBT's aligned emissions reduction and is choosing to contribute to credits that match its residual emissions without suggesting that it balances out or kind of counts as being zero. I think there's different ways to do it, aren't there? Yeah, the other one that I think I mentioned earlier that I think is interesting is when companies commit to spending a certain amount of money per tonne of emissions that remain, because that both creates that internal incentive to actually reduce their own internal emissions and ensures that a decent price is being spent on the project so that hopefully they're relatively high quality. I definitely don't have all the answers, though. We're not experts on business, but those are some of the options that we considered. David, did you want to come in on the net zero terminology? And if not net zero, are there other ways we can look at achieving ultimately what it is we want to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the title of the webinar, right? What reforms are necessary for the voluntary garden markets? I think there's been no agreement whatsoever on what companies can claim. I went to the supermarket the other day and saw two cartons of milk. One said climate positive, the other one said neutral. And I looked at the back, right? And the one that said climate positive was like, yeah, we're going to do all sorts of great things, but they weren't very clear. And fair enough, it's for a consumer audience. The term carbon neutrality came into mode years ago and people have been using it, but it does, nobody's really taken the time to define what that really means. And it has led to the perception that some people are using the carbon markets to greenwash or to just get out of jail free. And I think that's been problematic. We need to do something about it. But there is an organization doing this. There's the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative that's done a public consultation and they're trying to define what kinds of claims companies can make when they're buying offsets. And again, I think the top level claim is like I described before, you have a net zero target, you're on your way, you have evidence that you're performing against it, and you're offsetting the residual emissions. That's the holy grail of carbon markets or climate action, if we really want to look at it that way. And I think, and there's different gradations of how you can go not get that top star, but you can get something below. But I think that's really important and think hopefully in several months, I don't know the timeline of that initiative, but you know, I'm hoping that they'll come out with something that says, okay, guys, here's the rules. Like if you do this, this is what you can claim. If you do that, this is what you can claim. That's going to be tremendously beneficial for the market. And I think that will be very helpful as we go forward. And there's another initiative kind of on the supply side as well, which we can talk about. But anyway, I did want to mention the BCMI because I think we do need to have some sort of global or sector agreement on the kinds of claims that companies can make. So otherwise, people just say whatever they want and sell you milk that's you know, carbon neutral or climate positive, and nobody really knows what it means. The other thing I'd probably mention is also the Science-Based Targets Initiative. It's just kicked off its working group on beyond value chain mitigation, which is their way of talking about offsetting or carbon credits. And so there'll be some guidance there. And I think one of the perhaps unfortunate interpretations of what I think is a very important message from the SBTI has been their emphasis on reducing your emissions first. I think a lot of people have interpreted that as a call to ignore the carbon markets or not engage in the carbon markets. But I think what the SBTI has tried to make clear is they actually think it's very important that you engage in mitigating or engaging in the climate types of 
activities we're discussing here to deal with your residual emissions and, and address those. There are a number of entities that are working around trying to bring some clarity in this space. But I think what's increasingly becoming clear from our perspective is this neutrality question that is actually causing a lot of the controversy. Thank you very much for all the questions. We've got a lot of questions to get through. I'll try to get through as many as we can. Question at the top of the list is one I think that probably initially for you, David, can you address the issue of the counterfactual baseline and how the conservativeness of that baseline can be assured? And, and thank you to John Shidler for that question. There's requirements in our rules that require conservativeness when you have different emission factors, for example, and that plays out throughout the process. Ultimately, this new approach that we're developing will provide an overall envelope, if you will, for the total emission reductions that can be achieved at the jurisdictional level, and that gets allocated down, and that should give more confidence to folks that the projects actually have a baseline that reflects the potential at the jurisdictional level. So there's all sorts of controls. We just put out a consultation for what is likely to be version five of the VCF standard. And we encourage anybody to participate in that and give us some thoughts about how we can actually continue to improve the, the market and our rules and procedures. So we'd certainly appreciate and, and encourage everybody to look at that. Another question, the second most popular question, again, thinking about Vera, the question asks why your JNR methodology, and I'm, my ignorance, I'm not quite sure what JNR methodology is, slow to be taken up by the market, and what has changed that allows Vera to require jurisdictional baselines going forward, is the question. Do you want to address that, David? I think the main reason is that we don't have a big buyer behind us. I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, we developed JNR. JNR is our jurisdictional and nested red framework. We developed it about 10 years ago, and it's been out there. It was the first jurisdictional framework out there. But there was nobody kind of standing behind us saying, hey, I'm going to buy all those credits. The World Bank came in and said, hey, I will buy credits, but then they created their own methodological framework. And so did our trees. When governments are looking at who they're going to work their credits through, that does inevitably mean that we don't have that much demand for JNR, although there are some jurisdictions that are moving forward with that. Again, we think JNR is a great methodology. One of the great things about it is that it's the only one of these jurisdictional methodologies or approaches that has rules about how you nest and integrate individual projects. And I think the solution to forest conservation includes both. Work at the jurisdictional level where you can actually drive regulations and incentives at a, at a high level, at a macro level, but also the project-based approach, which allows projects to deliver direct benefits to individual communities, which is really critical. And there's now enough evidence that you can develop a robust jurisdictional baseline, and we now have models for how that's done. And we have examples of that being done, and some of the methodological gaps have been filled. There was a question about what does this mean for us working with government? In some cases, our baselines may actually be the, the exact same as the government, but we do have a set of rules and requirements that we're going to be putting forth for the development of these jurisdictional baselines. And in some cases, it may be different than what the government might approve. Again, there's a lot of different dynamics at play, but we think that there's a body of knowledge and we'll be putting out as part of the new red methodology, a call for data like what we're calling activity data, to be able to inform the development of those jurisdictional baselines. That'll have a set of requirements that we need to put in place to make sure that all the credits that we issue around the world are fungible with each other and have the same set of rules. We've got a question here, I'll put this to B and Sam, and sorry, insetting, what's the role of insetting? Our questioner just very simply asks, what are your thoughts about insetting? B, where does insetting fit into all of this? Yeah, very supportive of insetting. It feels like it in the mitigation hierarchy probably comes before offsetting, right? Like focusing on tidying up your own backyard before looking elsewhere, ideally, although doing both at once is also obviously great. We haven't looked into it in detail, but in our report, we did recommend that it's not quite beyond value chain mitigation steps. One of the key steps is you should look to prioritise before looking to offset. Yeah, from our side, I think I'm a little nervous about insetting as an approach because if you look at a lot of the proposals around how companies are going to use insetting, often it's that they're changing their land management practices. So they may be, for example, like reforesting parts of the land they control, 
Or, for example, if it was an agricultural company, they would change their land management techniques to take into account and try to promote the uptake of carbon on their land. We've heard from David how difficult it is to create cast iron and robust methodologies to quantify the impact of of land management techniques and the amount of carbon that that land stores. In the offsetting world, there's a lot of scrutiny around those methodologies. But for a lot of corporates, they're producing very limited data or divulgences around how they're actually calculating the impact of their insetting. And so there's a world in which all of the scrutiny around offsetting just forces companies to push that activity into their value chains call it insetting, and then there's a lot less scrutiny there. So I think it's quite important that the same level of scrutiny is applied to insetting approaches as applied to offsetting, because there's equivalent issues with the the monitoring and the verification of the impact of that activity. And I think there's even more danger where a company starts to use land management techniques or nature-based solutions And they bring them into their value chain. So imagine an energy company buys up a forestry subsidiary, says that's now part of my value chain, and then effectively create offsets in their own corporate structure and then say, look, I'm not offsetting, I'm insetting, and there's less scrutiny there. So I think market actually needs to think about the signals it's sending to corporates by encouraging insetting versus offsetting, because at the moment, there's a lot less scrutiny there. We didn't manage to get very robust evidence on this. So this is pretty anecdotal. But we also did hear from stakeholders and we ran a call for evidence concerns around companies in the UK buying up large swathes of land and sometimes disenfranchising local communities, which can also be a risk with offsetting projects. So I guess it underlines your point, really, Sam, that whatever approach is needed, we need robust controls and good um, methodologies. It does come back to the hierarchy we talked about before in terms of you just have to be decarbonizing everything you possibly can do and you can't just use something else to offset that if you're not decarbonizing things that you can decarbonize. Great question or a great point from Daniel Pointner who makes the point, are the voluntary carbon markets always going to be, have or attract sensational headlines? That's just the nature of the beast. Do you agree, David? Interesting. As long as we have a circular firing squad amongst the environmental movement, yeah, maybe. I saw another comment there about this is probably the most robust and transparent way of accounting for benefits. It's much more robust and transparent than the way you know many donor agencies account for the benefits of the projects that they do. All the data is available online on information. And so it is interesting that because we are so transparent, we do put ourselves out as being a target. I don't think that it is inevitable that there will always be a lot of criticism on what we do. It's early days, right? Addressing climate action has really only become a reality for a lot of people in the last 10 years. You know, the sector is still fairly young. We're going through some evolutions. And I think these are just growing pains for what I hope is going to be a very robust response to how we fight climate change. As things like the VCMI start to define what kind of claims you can have and work of the ICBCM, the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, sets out what counts as real credit. I think that will start to tamp down a lot of the inevitable criticisms that people have about the market and start to hopefully put it on an even sounder footing so that we can actually have real climate change. I think it's just part of the reality of what we have to face today. But I am confident that going forward, things will be more solid and that will, the market will have clearer goalposts on where to go. B, a question I want to put to you. As I recall, it was you that brought up the concept of contribution claims rather than carbon neutrality claims. Do you have any examples of companies working with those? I'm afraid I don't, but can I cheekily, really quickly just add to something that David said, and then perhaps Sam may have some examples on that. But just a note on that, how controversial it's going to be. I think it, it remains to be seen from my perspective in terms of what policymakers do, but also there is a wider context, right, where certain companies are perhaps not taking the climate action that's needed and a large purchases of carbon credits. And I think while that continues, 
there's going to be a conflation of voluntary carbon markets with that climate laggardism, and that's maybe part of the root of the issue as well. Sam, any examples of this contribution claims versus carbon neutrality claims? Yeah, I mean, for example, if you look at what Stripe is doing, it has a large carbon removals program. And to my knowledge, they haven't made any environmental claims off the basis of that program, which I think is very responsible because if you look at a lot of these new removals methodologies and technologies, there are real problems, again, around how the carbon accounting is undertaken for those types of approaches. So I think they've been conservative there and saying, look, we want to help this market scale. We think it's really important that we support it, but there's not a sufficient level of confidence. And also ideologically, we're not trying to make an environmental claim. We're just trying to be part of the solution. So I think that's a good example of a company that is is supporting climate action without making that claim. Quite a few people are talking about this behind closed doors at the moment. I think it's quite likely that you'll see a shift happening this year around the types of claims that are being made after purchasing carbon credits. Another question I want to put, and perhaps I'll see the panel briefly respond to this, is looking at the quality of projects. Something we've talked about already, really very important. And the question simply is, what are you guys doing when working with the wider sector to improve the quality of carbon projects? David? You know, we review every project that comes in the door. And I see some questions about what's the role of third-party auditors or validation verification bodies. And, you know, our job is to make sure that they're doing their job. And with the crush of projects that we've seen, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure that there are some developers on the line who are pretty not pretty happy with us because we're taking a long time to process their projects. And that's because we have to do our due diligence. So there's a, a fundamental role that we play to make sure that the projects and the credits that we issue have integrity. And that's really, really important. And we're kind of going through this process. We're actually getting through a lot of this backlog that we've had and we're working through it and going to see some really good good results of that. But it's taken a lot of organizational effort to make sure that we can actually review all these projects, but maintain the quality. But then there's also ongoing things that we do to make sure that our rules continually improve and reflect best practice, latest scientific evidence. You know, the example with RED is a good example. The example with our consultation on the BCS program is another one. If we just develop our rules and put them on a shelf and expected them to kind of last forever, that would not be a responsible approach because things change. Red, great example, right? We knew at the time that the best way of identifying a, a baseline for a project was to find a legitimate reference area that was as similar as you could to the actual project area. But now we're moving to a different model. And that may play out for other sectors as well. So we're constantly looking to improve the rules. And I think that's one of the key things that we do, in addition to making sure that everything that does come to our desk actually follows all the rules. Either Sam or B, do you want to comment on that quickly? The only thing I'd say is that I think technology is increasingly helping here. The amount of data we're now able to capture using satellite data and other techniques is really helping to bring a lot more transparency into the market. So, for example, the types of techniques that actually were used in the Guardian article, if calibrated in a more holistic way, can actually be very useful in understanding the real risks that projects are exposed to. And actually, those techniques are used in the JNR methodology, for example. Also, we're working with a number of academic groups and using LIDAR data to actually scan the planet's forests and then using that to calibrate our our machine learning models. And so what we're actually seeing is in many situations, the amount of carbon stored in the forests is actually underestimated. We've talked a lot about how uncertainty can bring questions into the carbon market. Sometimes that uncertainty is actually meaning we're underestimating the impact of these projects. So it's not always negative uncertainty. But I think that the advent of technology and the proliferation, particularly of increasingly higher resolution satellite data, is really helping the market as well. We do have an attendee who wants to make a question uh, live. So it's Mr. Gupta. Mr. Gupta, can you tell us who you're with and make your point? Mr. Gupta. Yes, I'm from India and uh, I am currently on a committee which is uh, making recommendations for the National Carbon Exchange, which has been in process for development in India. My question to all the panelists and perhaps more to David, 
is that uh, many countries have their own national carbon exchanges now. China has gone uh, that route and we've seen Korea go that route. Uh, in Europe, there's EU and then there is the Swiss uh, exchange and they have interoperability. How do you see the future for the voluntary carbon market if there are so many exchanges opened up nationally and a number of them are trading even within their own nations? I mean, they, they're not even trading within exchanges or trying to develop equivalents with other exchanges. So if there are so many standards and methodologies, what do you see for a future for a voluntary carbon market? Thank you. Great question. David. So I think that going back to the work of the ICBC and the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, you know, ultimately all of these exchanges you mentioned have kind of have to rely on a set of credits, right? In order for them to work, they probably will need to identify which credits they accept into the system. We can link to any of them through an API. That's a simple technology fix. But the authority, whether it's the country or the exchange, needs to decide which credits they're going to accept. And then that allows them to have access to credits from different programs like the BCS. I think that it's a matter of figuring out a set of consistent rules that allow these exchanges to determine which credits they accept. So there's already two national examples where this has played out in Colombia and South Africa. They have carbon taxes, but they allow credits from either the BCS program, the gold standard, and the CDM to be used to meet that compliance obligation. So they have gone through a set of rulemakings, if you will, that's set in stone what credits those are allowed. And the exchanges need to do the same. My guess or my hope is that once the ICBCM has a set of requirements and has approval for credits, then that would be an easy thing to base it on so that exchanges would say, oh, we'll just accept ICBCM eligible credits, for example. So that would simplify that process and reduce some of the confusion that's out there. Price, I want to turn to price. There's a question makes a point that B you raised initially. Our questioner points out uh, with carbon credits at $3 a tonne, it's always going to be cheaper to offset than to reduce. How do we solve the problems? How do we reform this so that the, the price is realistic? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think there's a couple of parts to it. So one is I think the low price at the moment in general raises questions around if a project really is delivering what it claims to be delivering and verifying fully, given most estimates I've seen suggest it would cost a lot more than that to actually deliver those outcomes and projects. So with increasing quality, we'd hope to see a rise in price. Although obviously it's great if you can deliver a project at low price to quality. But I think it really leaps back to that piece around what a credit is used for. We probably can't get the incentives right just through price alone or at least immediately. So it comes back to that point around companies not being enabled to use credits to make things like net zero claims and making sure the incentives are in place at the buyer end that they're directly decarbonizing their operations in the first place. For example, one thing that we recommended to the UK government was to set out a legal definition of net zero for businesses. Therefore, credits would only be used as a sort of last resort. And before that, they're being used in addition to directly decarbonising. So that's one way. Thank you, B. David, you want to come back in? Yeah, no, I think B made a really good point. Again, it goes back to the definition of what net zero or carbon neutrality or whatever term we choose to use, but that has to be defined and agreed to. Let's remember that carbon credits will most always be less expensive than internal reductions. Again, back to the emissions trading system that Europe you know, implemented, there were carbon credits that were meant as a way to allow companies to meet their targets at a lower cost. And that's likely to play out. But that, but just because the credits are lower cost than the actual reduction doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. I think, again, they play a complementary role. And if there's a clear definition of what you can claim when you are buying credits, and ideally it does include essentially making companies take on internal reductions, then I think you hit that sweet spot where you get the holy grail of real climate action, where you're decarbonizing an economy, but also you're investing in places where you can actually prevent emissions from going to the atmosphere or investing in removals, which are critical for the long term. We're coming towards the end of our time, as time has just flashed by. I'd like to ask each of our panel a single closing question. What do they think is going to happen over the next 12 months? What are they looking out for in terms of the carbon markets and the reforms that we've been talking about? What are they looking forward to seeing? Sam, why don't you go first? 
I'm personally really excited to see the outcomes of like the ICBCM, the VCMI and the SBTI work. I really personally hope that they're well calibrated and, and that they're actually complementary. I think that's probably the biggest risk for the market at the moment is that these different initiatives come out with contradictory or conflicting perspectives. I think that would be really problematic for the, for the market. So I'm excited to see if they can agree and if they can put out some helpful guidance. And the second thing is I'm, I'm really excited to see how the advances in technology and data sets like Silveras are able to help the market collectively raise and sort of voluntarily raise the bar in terms of quality. Thank you, Sam. B. Totally agree with Sam on SBTI, VCMI, ICVCM. I guess maybe from a UK perspective as well, excited to see the progress from the transition plan task force who look set to um, require companies to disclose their reliance on carbon credits or offsets. And the UK government's due to publish an updated green finance strategy in the coming months. And we're hoping to see some um, commitments there from offsets, but let's let's watch that space. Thanks, Pete. And David, what are you looking for over the next 12 months? I agree. I look forward to the ICBCM and the VCMI SBTI outcomes. Let me say, though, that I think they're really important. And again, I hope that they provide a thoughtful way forward. There's no reason why we should halt climate action now. Anybody who's working, looking at this market should understand that you got to be careful about the claims you're making and you got to do your due diligence on which projects are out there. But I think that a lot of the concern around the market isn't necessarily around integrity, it's around confusion. And you can solve that by being thoughtful about it. And then just in terms of the specifics, you know, I'm really looking forward to our consultation on the VCS program. Bring it back to the original point. I'm really looking forward to publish our new methodology for RED, which I think is going to set the stage for how this grows and how this drives further climate action going forward. Many thanks to our panel for all their insights and candor over the past hour and for all your questions. And look out for the next in our big debate webinar series, which is coming up in a few weeks, where we'll be looking at the rise and fall and possible rise of the meat substitute sector. We also have our Climate Action Event Innovation Forum coming up on the 12th to the 14th of June, where a lot of the stuff we've talked about today will be very relevant. It's been a great webinar. Thank you very much for joining us. And for now, goodbye. <laughs>